Welcome to the latest episode of Women Who Code Radio podcast. I am here with some ladies of Microsoft. First, we have Sarah Kaplan, who's Director of Site Reliability Engineering uh, for Office 365 Course Services, which happens to include Exchange Online, which is probably one of the most popular corporate email services ever, if not non-corporate as well. Sarah joined Microsoft in 2008 to be part of service engineering team for Hotmail. We pour out a pint for that. Before coming to Microsoft, Sarah worked at eBay and Palm in various roles. She's an active member of the Women of Microsoft group in Silicon Valley and board member for the nonprofit Circulo de Vida. Karen Leonard leads the Xbox console development team at Microsoft's Silicon Valley campus, managing a team of electrical engineers who work on building the current and future hardware of Microsoft's best-selling entertainment platform. Over her 16 years at Microsoft, Karen has been behind a number of major launches, first on Microsoft's TV products and then Xbox, and taking a management role in 2006 for Xbox 360, Xbox One, and other related products. Her team's focus is on product designs for high-volume manufacturing that make Xbox a profitable business for Microsoft. So welcome, ladies. Uh, impressive bios, both of you. Um, let's let's start out in the beginning. Let's talk about uh, schooling. Let's start with you, Sarah. Uh, talk a little bit about you know where did you go to school? What was your degree and what was your experience? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for having us on. Um, I grew up in Texas. I came to California to attend the University of California, Berkeley. Environmental science, policy management through the Department of Forestry and German. And now so, you're a director at Microsoft. Yes. It's very related, obviously. Clearly. Um, clearly, right? Slam dunk how I got from here to there. Not a problem. My dad's a my dad was an electrical engineer. I grew up with computers. He always had to have one. He actually built one. Um, like they brought they he thought they were at least sending him motherboards and they sent him a plain board with all the transistors and everything in a separate Oh my bag. goodness. And so he, he had to solder it. He soldered it all together. So we always had computers. Um, and in college, I got a job uh, managing Oracle databases for the Department of Health Services. Um, and one of the guys there and I decided to get our Microsoft certification. And then someone I graduated with became a tech recruiter and recruited me in. And from there, I've been in Wow, I, I will admit that that is the first legitimate positive use I've heard of a Microsoft certification ever. <laughs> that's, it, it was kind of like that everybody had one, but that's actually a really cool thing that you resulted with. Kind of, yeah. Like I got my, I mean, it doesn't say much for the Microsoft certification, and you'd be careful about this, but in, back in the day, I got my certification without ever having used NT. So wow. when it first booted up, I thought it had blue screened because the boot screen was blue. And I was like, yes. it's blue screen. And then they're like, no, no, it's just booting. I knew that. <laughs> anyway. I have to admit, NT is my nostalgic favorite for uh, operating systems for Microsoft. That was a very solid platform. All <laughs> to, right, Karen. To uh, Karen. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's true too. There was some bumps in the road. Karen, tell me a little bit about your educational background. Where How did you start out? So I have a similar story to Sarah in that um, I got exposed to computers early in childhood. My father was really into computers. He ran a computer club in my hometown back in the 80s. Um, and they had like disc of the month and just got together and <laughs> talked with, you know, um, all the people who are into building computers and stuff like that. Uh, so I was just always exposed to them. Um, he taught computers in high school and he'd bring home uh, these like, Radio Shack all-in-one PCs on the weekends, and we would just have, um, you know, have at it over the weekend. And uh, he brought home basic programming, like sheets, pa papers, or books, and we would type out the programs um, and then get to play them. And so that was 
really fun for us as children. And uh, then he would, you know, he bought PCs, um, and I was using them in high school. Uh, took a programming class, and just loved how uh, you could create something so quickly, iterate, you know, compile, run, see what you created, and then fix it and or change colors or whatever. It's just simple things in high school, but it was enough to, to kind of give me the um, you know taste of it, and I wanted to do more. So I ended up taking uh, considering computer science and um, engineering in college. What school was that? Oh, so I went to I was um, I went to the University of Waterloo. I'm from Canada. Okay. And uh, my advisors in high school suggested, why don't you start with engineering and see if you like that um, because you kind of had this hardware um, interest and um, you do get exposed to programming as well as operating systems and compilers and so I was kind of interested in sort of understanding the entire computer system from semiconductor through to applications and. Uh, and then once you're in, in uh, the program, you kind of narrow your, your, your focus out into, in my case, it was hardware. So I uh, graduated with a technical computer engineering degree. And Waterloo is popular, known for their co-op program. And my last co-op term was at Microsoft here in California. And I um, started full-time right after school. So you've only ever worked at Microsoft? For full-time, yeah. But I had six co-op terms as part of my degree. That's the standard for Waterloo. Sure. And I worked at a... Uh, software company to start and then um, another hardware company making mass spectrometers and and then um, Microsoft. Nice. That's excellent. Yeah, Waterloo is, a, I mean, it's for years, it's been known as a very solid computer science program. So yeah. um, that's fantastic. So Karen, you were in the computer, engineering computer science from the get-go. Um, what was the, what was your experience as a female in what is traditionally a fairly male-dominated academic area? It started in high school, actually. Um, even just those upper level uh, classes, um, like calculus and algebra that were sort of needed to get into engineering was almost all males. Um, that, that translated, you know, followed me to college. At Waterloo, you have a class of about 100 people that you go through 90% of the classes all together through the whole um, time there. And there was only seven females in my class out of 100. Um, and so that that, it just becomes you that's just that's just the atmosphere that you're in and you know and I found that you really needed to, to have a couple of really close friends people that you studied with you know you went through it all together but you also you know you're gonna get partnered up with with males too and so um, I, I was kind of a tomboy as a child anyway so didn't have any problem working with with men but um, it is a bit of a it's a bit of a shock being that few um, females it's actually you made it work. Yeah, and I, I was actually the only female in my first job also on my team. Um, first out of uh, one out of maybe 10 or 15 people, but we can talk about that more later. <laughs> yeah, let's let's come back to that one. Yeah. And then Sarah, your approach was uh, much more varied. You you uh, did what my dad always says is you go to your undergraduate degree to get an education and uh, which you which you got and then you completely switch gears from a professional standpoint. What were you thinking along those lines and well, were you kind of anti-computers initially or? No, 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 I was never anti-computers. I guess I didn't want to do electrical engineering. My dad had done electrical and it, I wasn't as interested in that. And for me, I always associated electrical engineering with computer science because everyone was eeks. Uh, right. I didn't want to do that. I actually started at Cal under chemical engineering, but I didn't really like that either. And so I just went to what I liked, which was environmental science. 
I never worked in anything but tech though. So from a professional space, I've always been in tech. It just, yeah, I just never thought about working. I mean, I, I, no, that's not true. Cause I got a job right out of college doing like Oracle database management. And so the few times I could look at environmental careers right out of college, they just did not pay as well. No, it, it's true. They, they pay pretty poorly. So you would be more like a Renaissance nerd then with your sort of breadth of scope. Uh, maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, but you did not go Microsoft right away. You went to um, a couple of companies. Uh, Palm is a very notable one. They were, you know, predated uh, Apple as far as the first set of really usable iPhones. Um, you know, one could argue Palm versus BlackBerry, but but uh, you know, I personally had about three or four generations of Palm devices. They were quite nice. And but then you have been at Microsoft for how long now? Eight years. Eight years. So the longevity there is for both of you. The you know industry average is I think twenty months right now. So oh, that's fairly impressive. It's it. Um, we talked. I talked to a couple of the folks at LinkedIn when we first were merging with them. Or sorry, we acquired them. They operate as a separate company. Um, but from an Office 365 perspective, right, we're, we're working on um, scenarios. And so when we met with that team, it's like, so how long have you guys been with the company? And everyone there had been there two years or less. Yeah, much more common. Right. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, tell me about, let's start with you, Sarah. Tell me about the switch that you made from individual contributor to management. Um, that was at eBay. I worked on the production operations side for the Windows front end team. My manager had me as a team lead, so I was, man I was sort of managing part of the team. And they were splitting the team to focus on projects versus like day-to-day. -day. And they wanted me to run this, the day-to-day -day team. And I was like, no, because that sounds horrific, right? <laughs> like I, That just sounds like turn the crank. It didn't sound interesting. So I looked around and um, interviewed with the network security team. I switched over to network security. So I learned about firewalls and a bunch of that stuff. And it was quite useful to have come from one of the front end teams because it was that team making most of the firewall requests. And like eight months after I did that, the manager quit. One of the two managers quit. Oh, jeez. And so I told my man, it was the other manager, not my manager. So I told my manager, like, I'm happy to help out in the meantime. Like, I don't know that I'm ready to manage, but I'm happy to help out. And he said, why don't you think you're ready to manage? Because I think you'd be good in this role. I was like, oh, okay. Then I'll throw my hat in. And then I got the job. Nice. That's actually very similar to what happened with me. I was, I was being a pain in the butt to uh, my, the management above me about wanting to have a little bit more control over what the team was doing. And they're like, well, you think we're not doing it well? Fine, you give it a try. <laughs> yes, yes. 20 well, years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> yep. What about you, Karen? How did you get into management? So you mentioned in my, my bio, um, I started managing in 2006. So it was about five years out of college. I, what I found is, Major uh, changes in my career happen concurrent with reorgs, and reorgs happen concurrent with project launches. So yeah. we had just launched um, Xbox 360 in 2005, um, and and that's sort of when we, people start transitioning. I want to work on a new project, and um, and so there's opportunity there. And uh, so somebody uh, in the Xbox hardware team um, became sort of the leader of the um, hardware development. 
and uh, they're looking for uh, two managers. And I, I was identified as a potential. Like I, I had certainly expressed interest in managing in the long run through my career discussions with my manager over, you know, over the course of um, you know various performance discussions and and things like that. But I think I was identified as a potential because I demonstrated leadership in the tasks I was given, even as an individual contributor. So I was a very uh, detail oriented. So when we had things like documentation that needed to be created to, we call it like a bill of materials, um, the bomb of all the parts that can be used on a board. I was very, very thorough in, in all of that. And um, I got the nickname Eagle Eye for checking those and, and there's a lot of documentation around part numbers and things like that. So I ended up managing a team that was responsible for the bombs and all the parts. And then I also started in schematics and CAD layout. So I, I managed the CAD team. So it's sort of like a logical match between things that I had naturally demonstrated, you know, uh, sort of an interest in and I was strong in those areas. Uh, and so that was, it was sort of a logical but opportunistic, like, hey, we need to have somebody to manage these groups. Um, and, and you have interest in managing, you have a, um, a deep knowledge in these areas. So, so that was how the match kind of worked. It, Worked out, but I really think it's opportunity relative to reorgs. <laughs> um, having had this conversation ongoing about like I eventually want to become a manager. I would. It's not luck, but there's a certain amount of you. Know, you, you can't make things happen sometimes. They have to sort of they fall into place because of other major milestones like shipping and <laughs> and reorg. Right. Kind of thing. So it's uh, having a demonstrable talent in conjunction with other circumstances. Right. It, it seems like both of you have uh, have been fortunate in having your own management recognizing uh, that talent and wanting to foster it, which is you know not always common. Um, so Karen at, at Microsoft, so this was 2006, it was about you know, 10, 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you feel that 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 was something that was specific to your manager, to your overall organization, to the company as a whole. I think in that case, I would I would say it is my manager. It, um, but you know that we would have sort of peer feedback in, in a less formal way than we have today. But um, people get known for things like oh, you know, like I had the eagle eye nickname and that kind of thing. So as long as the people who were thinking about the org structures and and who who's a possible candidate for positions, they have to know that about people's. Uh, skills or interests. At that time, I was more, I benefited more from my manager and, and my manager chain recognizing or knowing about me. Uh, but later I found I had to be more vocal about my interests, my skills, um, where I want to go. And the burden was more on me to make sure that my interests are known. But I, I, I do credit my manager for creating that position for me because uh, there's many different ways you can sort of slice up a, a team in different in different ways. And so that was just based on my, that first opportunity was based on these areas that I had demonstrated um, strength in. That's fantastic. It's always important to have that one advocate who mm -hmm. can sort of get you going in certain directions. Definitely. What about you, Sarah? You were at eBay. Uh, who was the CEO at the time? I, I can't keep track of all the CEOs at eBay. <laughs> It was Meg Whitman. It was Meg Whitman. Okay. I left just after John Donahoe took over. How do you feel sort of the culture, corporate level culture, department level culture, just you and your manager? Like, how did you make that transition? Sounds like your manager at least was very pro, hey, you can do this. Yeah, both both my managers, both the one on the network security side and the manager I had on the Windows front end side, 
were always really supportive and helped like gave me more and more sort of people focused responsibilities because I seem to have the aptitude there. And I, I, I think from an org perspective, it was it was an org culture. There just there weren't a ton of women, but the manager for the Unix backend team was a woman that I had worked with, and she had a couple of women on her team. I was the only woman on my team, and they joked that their token female was leaving the front end team to go be the token female on the network security team. Ouch! <laughs> um, it was. I mean, they were just. I mean, the time in, in good fun. Yeah. Well, but like there was just like it was just me. And so, yeah, they were, I I guess it was just the culture there. I never felt that it made a difference per se, gender. Mm-hmm. But I also started at eBay when I was three months pregnant. And so my first six months there was just me with a huge belly. And everyone was just really accommodating. But it gave me time to sort of settle in, I guess. Some, some unconscious leeway, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I had a good time. Let's go back to you, Karen. What's the favorite part for your for you in being in a leadership role? What what gives you the most satisfaction? I've been thinking about this for a while. I mean, not not because of this podcast, but just in my career, kind of like mid mid career, you know, where do I want to go next? And it was a few years ago that I realized that my product is my team. I, I get the pleasure out of uh, my team delivering the product. They they, they get they're proud of what they ship, it's, they deliver the products, but I'm, I get more satisfaction out of them um, doing the job better than we did last time and you know, still wanting to work together. <laughs> if, if people hate each other when we're done, then I fail, but that's my view. Uh, so I wanna create an environment where, where um, you know, people are happy with the growth that they're getting, exposure to technology or, or wherever they want to go in their career that I'm kind of able to balance so that everybody gets some of what they want to grow and some of what we need for the business. So I like that long-term over, like, I like, I think long-term overview for the whole project is our projects are about two years or sometimes three years long. So, but I, but I think about people's development over that whole period and say, at the end of this period in this role, you know, you're, you're going to have filled out this part of your skill set that you need to get to the next level. And so I like that, that people team development, um, I get more pleasure out of that than um, the shipping of the product. I'm excited when we ship. I want to ship, but uh, I think they're the ones doing more of the the groundwork to ship. And I'm, I can make sort of back end or behind the scenes um, decisions about resourcing and process that hopefully make the whole project smoother for everybody. So you, it sounds like you really consider yourself more than anything, a facilitator. Yeah, I would, I would say so in, in some ways. Um, facilitating the project, but trying to let the people in the front lines kind of have leeway how they're going to do it. But I set them up in the right role so that it's not going to do exactly what they did last time because then they maybe aren't growing, <laughs> but um, they're they're going to have grown through that experience. Um, and of course, over two or three year project, uh, they'll have many iterations in the same role and they'll have learned along the way. Given your reputation as the eagle eye for quality, how has that evolved into your new role as facilitator? It, sometimes negatively, <laughs> because you the tendency would be one to micromanaging. Sure. And, um, and that's, you know, the, when you're under stress, your default patterns emerge. And so when we get really stressful on a project, I'll just go right into the details instead of trusting. Um, so I have to kind of check myself on that as I go. So that's a, that's a problem with being sort of that type A um you know and very detail oriented 
like engineering. Uh, that's why I got into engineering in the first place. Is like okay, those details are kind of up my alley. But um, so that's it's it can be a hindrance. I have to kind of check myself on it. Pro and a con there. <laughs> sure, sure. How about you, Sarah? What gives you the most satisfaction in your current role? Yeah, uh, I mean, like Karen, I really enjoy matching people's strengths with business projects for a win-win. I like to play to people's strengths, and I think I can articulate and recognize people's strengths well and help them realize where their strengths are as well. Because sometimes I feel with feedback, we often are told what we're not doing well. I don't think we're told enough what we are doing well and what we need to keep doing. So I've tried to be better about that. That's and a pretty common cultural challenge. It's like, oh, it's great. Okay, <laughs> it's really bad. And now everything's you know on fire and we're yelling. Right, yes. I mean, feedback specifically, um, I've been trying to do and get a culture within my org um, better about because too many times it's easy to tell people you're doing a good job which doesn't tell anyone what part of their job they should continue to do as they're doing and which parts they can improve on and which parts can be done differently. Like it doesn't give you any information. So right. actionable feedback in both the positive and the constructive side. Um, so I enjoy all of that. And then I started managing managers. And then it's how do you achieve results through others? And that gets very, it's a different challenge. And as long as I'm challenged, I'm happy. But it's... It is different when you're trying to achieve through others and you have to try and take that broader scope and you can't get into the details because it's it's this weird abstraction layer sometimes. And how do you keep how do you keep in touch enough to make sure the ship's going in the right direction without displacing all the oarmen? So yeah, I'm still trying to figure out some of that nuance. Um, setting people up to, to be leaders themselves and help guide them with that. How much do you find in that process is really case-by-case case specific? And certainly in my experience, the way people think and approach problems, particularly around leadership and project management uh, and resource management, how uh, successful do you feel you've been in accounting for that? I mean, it's really tricky, right, when you're trying to coach people who in turn are going to coach yeah, you know, it's really easy if they're already good at it. <laughs> but then you um, wouldn't have job security. <laughs> true. It's um, is way more difficult with especially like new managers. I do take the the stance that you shouldn't try to correct multiple things at one time. Concentrate on one thing and try and get that better before moving on to something else. And so with managers, I try and focus on sort of one thing that I think is sort of pivotal to, to helping them succeed where they're being held back at the moment. With one person, it was like thinking sort of long-term and strategically. And for that, I'd just sit down and I'd say, look, this is the way I'm thinking about the problem. And then turn those conversations into how would you think about this problem and have a discussion. And then, by you know, and hopefully you're like, how are you approaching this? And they tell you in a very like logical way, the strategic significance of something and how they're going to do it. And you're like, yes, okay, now let's work on communication. <laughs> like, <laughs> now now yes. that you have that, how are you going to communicate? It? So I've done that with someone, with someone else. It's, um, yeah, it's just, it's like, okay, you know what? You are not clear when you send an email. So let's, let's work on that. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to get to be specific about either language or phrasing or something that comes across differently than intended. And then when that gets better, work on something else. 
it's actually hard too if they're really good because then they want feedback, right? The really good ones want feedback and they're self-reflective. And you're like, you're doing really well. Um, <laughs> I got nothing. I know, but you can't really say I got nothing. Yeah, no. no. So it's, it's like trying to figure that out too. But it's all, it's all interesting. What about you, Karen? So I think the challenge uh, is there's different levels of experience on your team. And some people come in um, with the, se the senior, more experienced people, they come in to meet with you with like, here's my here's my issues list, here's what I need help with, and like they drive the conversation, right? They're they're driving their work, um, and and you're there almost as like like uh, bumpers, you know, <laughs> the bowling bumpers or something. Um, and then there's people that are uh, new to new to a role or new to, to to team or you know uh, new to an area, and you need to you know do a lot more um, coaching or training. And so it's sort of the you know situational leadership is program or training people you know to study for years. It depends on the situation and the person, but you have to adjust. I, I have very different discussions with everybody on my team based on what they're doing, their style, and so kind of having to adjust to that. Um, but ultimately, I want to make sure that I know um, what they need from me, and also try to foresee what they need from me because they may not know where they need help. Like it looks like you're spinning your wheels here. Are you are you getting stuck? The challenge I think is as much from different from the early career as a manager to later more experiences is um, knowing to adjust um, my style with for each person and the situation that they're in right then. So one of the things that I've had uh, personally a lot of trouble coaching on and, and trying to explain coherently is there's a certain detachment and shedding of ego that I think is really critical as you climb the management ladder, because in our roles, we're supposed to be these facilitators. And if we allow ourselves to get emotionally affected by a lot of the information that we receive and the communications that we receive, we're not able to succeed in our roles. And I've had a really hard time explaining how I do it other than I just do, like it's something that comes with practice. Is that something that you've really thought about and sort of changes in how you react emotionally um, to circumstances that happen around you versus, you know, earlier in your career versus now? So, or do you just have that emotional experience and, t and expect everyone to deal with it? I mean, that's also a, a choice. <laughs> what sort of an emotional experience in this case are you talking about? Oh, like anger, defensiveness. Um. Uh, well, okay, let me say. So I've had issues where, at least as a newer manager, if I saw someone was struggling, but I knew they were struggling because as their, as their manager, they told me they're having these issues at home, whatever those issues might be. And so you want to give them that space and time to deal with those. And so you're like, okay, let's lighten your load a little bit. Sure. So you can do that for a bit, right? Like, yes, okay, but then, you know, but then you expect that to get cleaned up and then, are not cleaned up, but resolved, I should say. And then sure. um, expectations go back to them. But that's a fine line. Like, how long do you do that? When do you do that? How much do you like? Like, I found that that can be a trap where you emotionally become so connected to, to the employee and the issues that they're going through that you want to react as a friend doing anything you can, but you just have to be a friend with a lot more sort of power to help. And that doesn't go well. And so it's how do you, as a manager, to, to some extent, say, stay detached enough that you, not that you're not sympathetic, but it's like, okay, I get you're going through this. Here's what we as a company can do, 
like here's some time off, leave. But you know, your performance, the performance expectations are still there. If you can't meet them, you need to think about taking time out until you can, otherwise it will hurt your job. And and like realizing the need to do that took a little while. It was it's quite easy to get too involved. So I'm not sure yeah. if that's what you meant. That, that's certainly one example, absolutely. Do you have any thoughts on this, Karen? I concur 100% with what Sarah said. I think I, where my emotions have tripped me up the most is being almost too accommodating. Seeing someone's going through something and then it's it sort of, it comes excuse after excuse after excuse. And I, you know, and then I try to balance that load across the team. Okay, we'll pick up for you here and there. And, um, and then realize that it's not, yes, the person may be going through those things, but there's still some un other underlying performance issue and I, I was too. I took too long to address it because I was letting my emotions or my, you know, I was getting involved emotionally in um, the situation. I would say in other cases, sort of having like a high EQ has benefited me, right? Being able to like sense some tension in a meeting or in between two people, or hey, I think there's something going on here, and and, and try to go resolve that because we we can't have. I mean, that's going to be long term um, negative for the team. So I think there's a there's a balance we have to play. I think that being I wouldn't say I'm emotional, like I brought up breakdown in tears <laughs> at work, that kind of thing, but being emotionally aware is more of a strength, except for when it's it's uh, in the er earlier example of gotta be aware that we're not uh, kind of letting things slide or you know overcompensating for somebody who's has a, a different issue aside from the personal um, events in their lives. What about a scenario, maybe this is not something that you run into, which would be awesome, which is, uh, you know, you work in, you both work in a very large organization. Um, in Sarah's case, you've worked in several large organizations. You're in a company-wide meeting or larger engineering meeting. Maybe your group gets called out. And there's that sense of the human factor that sometimes comes up at companies where everybody gets stressed and, and they're starting to react. You feel like, you know, as you've risen in management, that's something that you deal with differently as you've evolved in kind of developing a thicker skin or better mechanisms for handling it. I'll jump in quickly if that's okay. I once is just that calling out of someone's failure in a, like a large meeting has never happened to me or like in my meetings I've been in. Microsoft has, has uh, definitely embraced this growth mindset um, when Satya took over and you know we, we can learn from mistakes. I, I look at my my skip level manager that I've had of almost 16 years. I learned from him. He modeled how to handle mistakes. We've had several issues. I just shipped a bug. And you're like, with hardware, you can't just necessarily uh, you know, release an OS update or something. You, um, and but I, firmware patch. Thought, Here we go. <laughs> firmware will fix it. But there was no like, what are you thinking? You know, who's the idiot who did this? It was just okay. What do we know? What do we need to do? How can we fix this? And it was just modeling. We got to solve the problem. It was not about finding blame. It was about finding the solution. And so that was my immediate response to like that. At most, it's been like a hey, in a post mortem kind of way here's something that happened here's what we're going to do differently about it um you know we change change to this process or approval or something like that but it's always been sort of looking forward and not trying to assign blame to somebody oops sorry go ahead sarah no i mean i concur like at microsoft i haven't seen that i have seen a i think the mindset that if a mistake happened anyone could have made it and what is the process issue we have that allowed that to happen and let's fix that process or that technology issue. 
um, because humans obviously will always make mistakes and it's up to us to, to fix technology process, anything we can to avoid that. That said, there, as a manager, there are decisions made that you don't always agree with or that you find to be more difficult to get behind. Those I've had to take time to think through and rationalize myself and have conversations with people around before I can talk to my team about them because I'm not gonna pass them on until I'm behind them. I'm not gonna lie to my team, but they're gonna know if I'm not behind it because I think it always comes across. And in those cases, it has taken just a little bit longer. So, so this brings up kind of a longer discussion around uh, Microsoft in general which is rightly or wrongly, Microsoft had a, a long-standing reputation as, as far as having larger corporate culture challenges. There's a, a really funny- The guns? The guns, yes. Uh, the pictures of all the organizations. And I've actually personally uh, heard of, from Microsoft employees previously, many, many years ago about some very outstandingly uh, dysfunctional cross-organizational challenges. And then Satya himself had that rather unfortunate misfire at the Grace Hopper conference, which sadly was publicized widely. But to be fair, it really seems like Microsoft has made a lot of strides, both uh, culturally and frankly, also technically strategically. And it, and as a sort of a long time person of, of suspicion to Microsoft, I, I worked for Netscape. And before that, I worked for Borland, with both companies that sort of suffered under previous Microsoft regimes. I, I, I have to admit, it kind of is looking rosy over there. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? When I first started at Microsoft, I told my dad that I had taken this job. And he's like, ooh, working for the evil empire. <laughs> and my husband says, no, 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 it's just the empire now. Now that I'm working, it's just the empire. But like, I don't get that sense at all anymore. There are pockets of that culture still left, of course, like it's a huge company. But by and large, like the focus on diversity, um, inclusion, and then the, which in and of itself to me speaks to the encompassing of new technologies, open source, being transparent, like all of that is stuff that my org has always done and now is becoming so much more common with every team. And it's been, it is, it's really, it's a great time to be here. That's awesome to hear. What do you think, Karen? Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I think specifically in the Grace Hopper, you know, incident, that was one of Satya's earliest, um, you know, kind of shows uh, as a new CEO. And um, he certainly internally addressed it. And he's like, I made a mistake. I said the wrong thing. I was misinformed, you know, this is what this is what's actually the how it is, and I think you know he it was public, but it wasn't as that that story doesn't make the press, you know, <laughs> his uh, sure. his correction, uh, but he you know again I think the leaders demonstrating that growth mindset. He was toting that book, and terminology is all throughout our culture and uh, in our HR guidelines, and uh, we we hear growth mindset everywhere um, in here, and so I think that that has been a noticeable shift. Um, also, a few things that Satya did in the very beginning were like, you know, shipping our products on iOS, which never had happened prior, you know, to that. And, um, and you know, open source, as Sarah mentioned, a lot of differences than um, the previous sort of it's only Microsoft. So I've, I've enjoyed the change. I'm, like, I'm 
appreciating the change and uh, just a lot of new leadership and taking the company in the right direction. You know, even just for instance, having three women on Satya's leadership team. We see it and we have exposure to those women and it's just, it's just great to see. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, Microsoft, whether you love it or hate it as, a, as an organization, it, there's no denying its huge impact in high tech uh, as a whole. You know, it's definitely in there and in one of the top companies in the world. So to know that it can make that type of both by probably internal and external perception is a fantastic thing to see. I have one last question for you both, which is maybe some advice that you might give to your fellow ladies in tech who might be interested in, go in particular, going up the management path, what you might say to someone to convince them to join our ranks. Let's start with you, Karen. Ooh, I wanted Sarah to go first. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Um, so okay. I'll, I got an answer. Um, it was funny when my Waterloo experience was uh, over a five-year period, you have a bunch of four, everything's four months four months of school, then four months of an internship, four months of school, four months of internship over a five year period. So my, my time scale for everything was so tight. I graduated, okay, I'm gonna be two years working, I'm gonna start managing, and then two years later I'll have a kid. And, and I got to work, it was like much longer horizon for everything. And so I think on one hand, I started managing about five years in to my full-time career, but I had two years of work experience from that those co-op jobs. So, but still relatively early in career. And I think, it hindered me on kind of continuing my technical depth. So I would say don't rush, you know, jumping into the management role. Um, I had to keep the technical. And so I would just keep the long, keep the long term in, in mind. You got to go through a lot of things to grow along the whole way. And your career is hopefully like a 30 year, 40 year horizon to think about. Um, so there's no rushing. I got in early too. And I, I think that was, that definitely made things a little bit more difficult. What about you, Sarah? No, I totally agree with that one. I mean, for and honestly, for men or women, I do see many more with the men. I see their um, ambitious timelines uh, for promotion and for whatever. And I would totally concur with Karen. Don't rush it, especially at larger corporations. Those timeframes are just going to be longer. And for me, it's every time someone comes to me and says, I want to manage, and I ask why. And if they tell me, because I can get more done, I was like, you have your minions. He's like, yes. I'm like, then no, I will not let you manage in my organization. It is not simply a stepping stone to a career path. And if you see it as simply another checkbox to reach on your way somewhere, then I don't want you managing in my organization. What I want are people who are genuinely interested in growing people's careers and in fact can grow people's careers past their own. Right? Like, are you capable mm -hmm. of growing people past where even you are? And are you willing to let them go beyond you for if that's what's best for everyone? Those are the people that I want managing. So for me, it's it's you have to want to do it for the people aspect and not for the promotion slash career ladder aspect. Yeah, too many people seem to view management as a promotion path. And it's not. It's really an alternate career path. There's exactly. plenty of things you can do as an individual contributor, you know, technical team lead, uh, principal or architect, chief scientist, right? Yes. Yeah, it, it, you're right. The, the people aspect is really what differentiates it. And making people aware that all those avenues exist and they can be equally successful staying technical if that's really what they want to do. Telling them too, I can help you be successful there because it's about influence. Well, mm -hmm. I need people to manage to influence. No. 
If that's what you think it takes, you will never be a good manager, nor will you succeed, period. And so some of the, there, there is overlap just within growth in terms of influence, but people who believe they, they need that title change and that power in order to achieve more um, are not people that I would promote in my organization. No, in fact, I think in both of your cases, the fact that you were exhibiting influence prior to being a manager was what got your upper management recognizing that as a potential path. Absolutely. Well, I really want to thank you ladies for taking a time out today to have a chat with me. Hope to keep in touch in the future and really am curious to watch uh, Microsoft's trends in the coming years as it does provide leadership in the overall tech world, um, both technically and perhaps culturally even. So thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Tara. You've been listening to Women Who Code Radio. For more information about today's episode or to ask questions or submit ideas for future topics, check out our show notes at womenwhocoderadio.blogspot.com. To learn more about Women Who Code, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, go to the main website, womenwhocode.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at Women Who Code. I'm Tara Hernandez, at Tequila Rista on Twitter, and thanks for listening.